when we all signed up for an Ironman, I had no idea what I was signing up for, Jade. I had no idea. Oh. It was crazy. Like, I understood it was a very long race. Uh, but up until that point, I had run a marathon. And I was like, okay, like, it can't be that much worse than a marathon. I didn't even own a bike at the time. So, yeah, I, I was uh, naive, I would say. Welcome to Inside Out, the podcast about badass millennials living out their dreams and how they got there. I'm your host, Jane Z. Hi, friends. If you're watching this on YouTube, you're probably one of the few people who requested it. So thank you. Thank you. And hope you enjoy this. Um, welcome to our very first video episode. If you're tuning into the audio, welcome back. A few weeks ago, I asked you guys on Instagram whether you wanted episodes posted to YouTube and the people have spoken. Majority said yes. So here we are. I'm going to be posting select episodes here on YouTube. One of the perks of YouTube is the comment section. So I look forward to hearing what you guys think. Don't be shy. Leave some comments. And don't forget to like and subscribe. All right. So today's guest is Chi Pham. She's a Vietnamese American athlete and UX designer. I stumbled across her Instagram a few years ago where she's built this community of over 100,000 fitness ladies on her account, FitFam. In this episode, we talk about how fitness has played a huge role in her life from swimming competitively from middle school all the way up to college and later to running Ironman triathlons. Now, if you don't know what Ironman is, it's essentially this mega triathlon that consists of a 2.4 mile swim and then a 112 mile bicycle ride and a marathon 26.22 mile run. Oh boy, I feel tired just saying all that. So big kudos to Chi. By day, Chi works as a UX designer at Google. She's currently a Google.org fellow and she's getting her master's in public health at UC Berkeley. I had a lot of fun getting to know Chi, and I hope you do too. Enjoy the show. All right. Welcome to the podcast, Chi. Thank you. Thank you. I'm so excited to be here. So excited to chat with you today. Um, I've been following you on Instagram for a few years now and saw you move from Denver to San Francisco and like some of your career moves. So I'm super excited to talk to you today about all the things. Um, so Let's start with your upbringing and childhood. I want to hear about, you know, growing up in San Diego. I know swimming was a big part of your life. What do you remember about that time? Yeah. Um, so I grew up in San Diego. Uh, my parents are, uh, so I'm Vietnamese and my parents came over to America in the 90s after the war ended um, as part of, you know, seeking asylum and leaving the country. And so we arrived, it was at that point, just my mom, my dad and my brother. Um, and so I was a bun in the oven, uh, yet to be discovered as they arrived in America. Um, so it's crazy. That's like, kind of like how we started, right? We're just, you know, a little family, Vietnamese refugees. We've come to California and San Diego and immediately we kind of settle in a community that's very um, also other people of the same story, right? Like other Vietnamese folks who have come over to America to try to start over and start something new and try to make a living um, in the nineties. And so, so that's like the defining theme of my childhood. I feel like is just 
growing up as a Vietnamese American with, you know, parents who are also just like trying to figure out what the heck they're doing <laughs> and like make a living and learn English and care for their two young children. Um, and so, yeah, I, I, I feel like that has shaped, you know, who I am, you know, the sense of community and growing up with other people around me who look like me and are also uh, going through the same struggles and experiences. Um, so, yeah, sorry, your question was about swimming. When did I start no, swimming? but this is so interesting. <laughs> I, I actually didn't know about your family's backstory, but yeah, that's yeah. wild. Like your parents have come such a long way and they must be so proud of you and what you've accomplished. It's, it's just great. It's like both like, yes, they're so proud. And then also it's like, as I'm sure other you know, uh, first generation Americans can feel it's a lot of pressure that your parents put on you to succeed, mm. but you know, they put all of, they sacrifice so much for you. So of yeah. course you want to make sure that you're giving back and uh, that you're meeting expectations. So I feel like that's kind of the push and pull of, you know, part of the push and pull of being first generation of like, you're Vietnamese and you're American, but you're not really Vietnamese because you didn't grow up in Vietnam and you're not really American because you don't look like the you know, classic American quote, unquote, mm. you know, that's a whole nother thing. <laughs> um, and like growing up, um, as they're trying to navigate through, like, how do they make a living? How do they find a job, um, that is skilled? How do they find, um, you know, resources that they can use to help, uh, you know, raise my brother and I, um, and yeah, how do you like create joy in the simple things with your family when you have so little, you know, I think that's probably one of the biggest things I learned mm -hmm. uh, growing up of like, it was never about a thing because most often we couldn't afford the thing. So it was mostly about family and spending time with family and doing activities that bring you joy as opposed to focusing on the things that would bring you joy. Um, mm. so that's also why I love swimming. I just, I loved it. And it was just like my activity where I could go and just be a kid and just, you know, play in the water and I happen to be good at it. So that also makes it more fun, you know, of like, <laughs> you're like good at the thing that you like doing. Um, so that's kind of, yeah, I think how swimming just became such a big part of my life was, it was this activity that I love doing and I just, yeah, outside of school and responsibilities and all that stuff. <laughs> right. Yeah. And mm -hmm. I feel like it, when it comes to the investment, like swimming is such a low barrier activity, right? You just need a swimsuit and access to a pool, which in most yeah. communities, there's some kind of public pool. Yeah. yeah, there is some kind of public pool and there's some sort of community swim group. I think as you like get a little bit higher in swimming and like start competing more seriously, it does start to get pretty expensive as all sports. You know, sports are crazy expensive, mm -hmm. <laughs> like to travel, to enter events and, you know, do meets. That was also another thing that I, I have no idea how my parents afforded all of it, but they like really made sure to invest in like, yeah, my brother and I, so mm. very thankful for them. Oh, thanks, yeah. fam, family. The fam. The family. <laughs> the fam. Oh, yes. God. Shout oh. out to the fam. Yes, Asian parents. <laughs> Bless. Bless, God. 
Yeah. yeah. Wow. So when did you start like going to meets and like, when did it start getting sort of serious with swimming? Yeah. I, I, I feel like I did rec swimming for a long time. And then, um, I think around middle school, my coach was like, you can't do rec swimming anymore. You really need to like go to the next level, which is competitive swimming mm. and competitive swimming is this huge range. Like you can, you know, just like compete or it goes the highest level of competitive swimming is like qualifying for the Olympic team. Um, so there's like a huge range and like, you know, there's lots of needs in between. And like, as you get faster and faster, there's like different standards that you qualify for and different meets that you can go to. Um, so I feel like I entered that world, uh, in middle school, which is kind of late actually, I think for most people, uh, I think most people just start swimming earlier and they get to that competitive like world a little bit earlier. So it was just like this brand new scary world that I was both like, ah, I'm not sure if I'm good enough to like be in this, you know, this world. Um, but also exciting because you're so new, there's no expectations of you. You just kind of like hop in the pool and do, do this thing. And then you like somehow qualify for the next meet and people are like, wow, amazing. I don't know. It's like the beginner games, you know, the beginner games of doing something new where you're like, just starting to get understand like what you're doing and there's no expectations so you're still having a ton of fun I feel like that carried me all the way through college <laughs> oh that's so fun did you end mm -hmm. up swimming in college too I did yeah swimming wow. surprisingly was one of the biggest factors for me when it came to choosing where I wanted to go to school which mm. I don't know if I would like prioritize it that way again, if I were to do college, mm. but it was like, uh, yeah, I just love swimming so much. Can you believe that? I was like, <laughs> oh, I can believe it. <laughs> oh my God. I, yeah. So I, I just, um, yeah, so I, I was swimming in middle school and then high school swimming was so much fun. That was like the first time where you like compete on your high school team and, um, the first time where I started to understand like what a team was, cause swimming is like pretty individual and competitive swimming is very individual. Like you do score points for your club team, but it's not really, uh, you don't really have that like same pride as you do for a high school team or a college team really. So I feel like high school was the first time that I like got to be part of a group, like working for this greater goal than each individual um, person or swimmer. And that was like, so fun. And I really wanted to keep doing that in college. Um, and I hadn't hit my plateau yet. You know, I feel like all athletes at some point hit some sort of plateau. Um, mm -hmm. so I hadn't hit my plateau in swimming yet. So I was just like, I'm going to ride this wave all the way. <laughs> yeah. Literally all the way to college. Yeah. <laughs> literally yeah. ride the wave. <laughs> <laughs> wow. So did did swimming end up being a big part of your college experience? And maybe you can tell us a bit about your time at Washington University in St. Louis and, you know, being in St. Louis and what it was like moving across the country. Yeah, um, <laughs> I feel I feel so glad that I decided to do college outside of California because I feel like a lot of people don't leave California. And I think that's a shame because you don't get to see the rest of the country, right? California is such a little bubble. Um, so it was awesome moving to the Midwest. I will say I'm not a huge fan of the weather in the Midwest, um, <laughs> as I rudely discovered my first year and uh, saw snow for the first time, Jane. That was where 
I saw snow fall from the sky for the first time. And I was like, wow, what is this? <laughs> I had to get like a whole new wardrobe for the winter. It was, yeah, it was intense. But I chose WashU because it had a great medical school. And I thought I wanted to be a doctor at the time. And it had a great swim program uh, that was D3. So none of my scholarships were dependent on my uh, act or none of my scholarships were dependent on my athletic performance, which I really appreciated because I was like, I, I didn't want the stress of like having to perform and like having my college education ride on that. Yeah, that would be um, so stressful. It's too stressful. I, oh my God, I can't. Um, but yeah, so I, I swam when I was at WashU, which was like the lion's share of my experience in college, I feel like, because we, we were together so much. Uh, we'd swam, we practiced like over 20 hours a week, uh, like mornings and afternoons, the weekends. And then if we had swim meets that were travel meets, like we were together the entire weekend. Uh, so I would say I got to know my teammates extremely well. Uh, we bond through like pain, sweat, <laughs> misery, <laughs> and yeah, and parties. So that's like the perfect bond for like a college, um, <laughs> a college bond there. That's like, those are the ingredients. But yeah, I mean, some of those people like, some of those people just saw you at your very, like you're beaten down. You're at the, you're like in the middle of a set and you're like, sometimes I cried during practice and I feel like some uh, folks would, you know, see that and, you know, give you encouragement or be like, suck it up. You can do it. Like, let's finish this out. Um, you know, so the team was, the team was great. I, I love the swim team. I loved swimming. I loved competing. Um, but at that point after college, I was like, I think I'm ready <laughs> to be done with swimming because <laughs> it's just like such a total focus for so long. It's like your whole entire life is revolving around um, achieving your goals in swimming. And eventually you're like, wait, there's so much more to life. you like, <laughs> you should probably think about academics and stuff too. Right. Yeah. Maybe more to life outside the water. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I can see that it being easy to, you know, get sucked into one thing if you're so focused and you have a great community around you. Yeah, uh, it was it was a, an amazing I mean, you just learn so much about yourself and who you are um, in sports. I feel like it's like it's not only learning how far you can push yourself in sets, you know, like how hard can you work? Can you like um, really focus and dedicate your time and your efforts towards achieving your goal. But it's also like, what do you do when you don't meet your goal? Like, mm. what do you do when you get to your championship meet and you totally tank and you don't qualify, but your teammates do? Uh, it's like that question of character of like, you can't take out your frustrations on other people. You have to be a teammate. You have to support the other person, no matter how disappointed you are with like how you did. Um, it's, it's much more about, you know, how do you, how do you like pull yourself back together after something that you've worked so hard for, for so long doesn't mm -hmm. happen. Um, so I feel those lessons uh, I learned repeatedly <laughs> throughout college. Um, and they sucked, but I think looking back, it it's just an incredible opportunity to 
like a see the worst parts of you and also b like have a chance to shape the better parts of you and kind of give yourself a direction to shoot for when you don't meet the mark yeah definitely i mean it sounds like swimming gave you such a strong foundation for your mental game right just going through life and like there's always going to be obstacles but it's about how you approach them i'm saying for it sure. as if i actually practice this. <laughs> yeah. Send it up perfectly. <laughs> yeah. Preach. And then, you know, practice takes years, but, um, but yeah, with that being said, like in academics, you didn't end up going to med school, right? No, I did not. <laughs> <laughs> like many not of us. <laughs> no, 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 no. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, <laughs> uh, the story is I had one of the last sign up spots for my freshman year, like my first year of classes, um, I had one of the last registration spots. So by that time, uh, chem and chem lab classes were really full. And I could only the only chem lab option I had was on Saturdays, which was also during swim practice. So I was like, I can't do it. So I didn't sign up for chem, the first like class, the first chem class, which by the time the second semester rolled around, it meant that I couldn't enroll for chem, the second chem two, and then bio, which are like the three main prereqs that like every pre-med student takes. And my advisor didn't say anything to me. She didn't say anything that like this was like crucial to a pre-med track. So that advisor uh, has areas of opportunity or like opportunity (laughs) to grow. Definitely. Yeah. So then by that point, by the time I finished my freshman year, I was like three classes behind on a pre-med track. And uh, I saw my brother going through medical school at the same time. And those two things together made me feel like I was like, I don't know if I actually want to be like a medical student. Like I, I didn't feel anything. I didn't feel disappointment when I found out that I couldn't take my classes. And I feel like I'm not really loving the lifestyle that my brother is having right Mm -hmm. now as a medical student. So anyway, anyways, long story long, I decided not to try to catch up, (laughs) Um, which I feel like if I was already feeling lackluster about it my first year, then the road to being a doctor was going to be too long for, for me. So yeah, I kind of floated around my first year. Um, I didn't really know what I was going to do. Um, I mean, WashU is a, it's also a liberal arts college. So they like encourage you to take a lot of general classes. And I, um, I landed on this major called psych, uh, neuroscience and philosophy, which I thought was Mm -hmm. so cool. So cool. And then my advisor says, Hey, gee, do you want to be a professor or like a researcher? And I was like, mm, no, I like, I don't know. I don't know. That sounds boring to me for some reason. I really want to like doing, I want to do stuff in the real world. I don't want to be like in academia. And so then she was like, I don't think you should pursue this major, which I feel like is like my first lesson in uh, the people that you're exposed to can dramatically define and shape your path right? Which is so crazy. So if someone is opening the door for you, then it's like, wow, it's like a whole new path that you didn't know existed. Um, But if someone doesn't open that door for you, it's like almost as if this realm of possibility just doesn't exist, which it's just such a shame because so many people 
have so much potential, but don't get exposed to the right people or the right networks or the right job or the right industry. Mm. Um, and so it's just, yeah, it's just like, sometimes I just like, imagine if everyone was exposed to all these possibilities, you know, what would our communities look like? What would people mm -hmm. want to be instead of just being like, I want to be a doctor or an engineer, you know, like, what if I want to go into nonprofit development or like nonprofit fundraising or something, you know? I don't know. Yeah. I don't know if that makes sense at all. <laughs> no, I, I think about that all the time, actually, how like, especially in high school and even in college and adults, like we don't get much exposure to all the different types of careers and no. jobs that are out there. It's crazy. Yeah, exactly. Like I just like my whole entire career right now, UX design is something I just happened to stumble upon, you know, like it wasn't uh, and it, like, I had a great manager who like helped open like that door and like bridge the pathway. But if he hadn't been there, if this opportunity hadn't like come up, then I would have probably just never discovered UX design, which blows my mind. <laughs> blows yeah, my mind. What's, yeah. The, what's the backstory there? Because um, you had mentioned you were doing community organizing work in DC mm. and then yeah. transitioned yeah. into UX. I, so I ended up choosing uh environmental earth sciences as my major at WashU. Um, and so I was like ready to change the world, Jane. I was like, oh my gosh, I'm gonna move to DC. I'm going to like shape policy and yes. influence. We're gonna solve climate change. The EPA is gonna blah, blah, blah. You know, I was like ready to go. So then I <laughs> ended up working at this small nonprofit called Groundswell. And mm -hmm. they do, uh, they're a nonprofit that focuses on the bulk purchasing power of a community. So like if you can get a community or like a group of organizations or businesses to come together, uh, can you use that like collective purchasing power to negotiate for clean, uh, lower prices on clean energy? Does that mm. make sense? So it's like, yeah, if you can get like a huge group of people together, like hopefully that will drive down wind prices because that will make it more competitive. Because at that time, uh, solar and wind was much more expensive than fossil fuel energy, especially in DC and on the East Coast where, you know, all those coal and um, like natural gas uh, drilling was. Mm. So, yeah, so that was like the whole premise. I did a lot of community organizing, which really just meant like me talking to a lot of people at farmers markets, going door to door, calling people up on the phone. Um, and then I also did customer support which meant answering the phone whenever someone had a question and like helping troubleshoot them and all that stuff. Uh, so my manager was like, Hey, we need a new website. And I said, Hey, I can do it because everyone else is super busy. Uh, I guess I'll, ju I'll just do it. Whatever. Blah, 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 blah. And he's like, okay, cool. You take that on. Uh, I saw this one like post somewhere about UX design. Like maybe you can take a free class on Udemy and, maybe that'll help you as you do this project or something. Um, so yeah, I just like took a free class on Udemy, Udemy. I don't know how to say that. Do you know what I'm talking about? Yeah, I think it's Udemy. I think you're right. Udemy. Okay. Yeah. So I took a free class on there on UX design. And at that point I was like, wow, this is so cool. It's mm. like a new way to think about how to solve problems. It puts people at the center of the problem, not profit or like business. Um, and yeah, and it was just like a very cool skill for me to have because I feel like I, I graduated college with 
subject matter expertise, like in environmental stuff and, you know, policy, but I didn't have hard skills. And Mm. so I was like, I don't want to do community organizing and customer support for the rest of my life. So maybe I should pursue this path of UX design to get a new skill (laughs) that hopefully I can, uh, you know, apply in different industries that I care about. But um, for now, I'll just go down this road of UX and design and tech. Yeah. That's kind of how it started. Yeah. It sounds like you also got training in like sales and support, like pretty much all the roles of a tech company. Um, yeah, except I was doing it poorly, I would say. <laughs> I mean, it was your first job out of college. Yeah, you know, just doing flying. What is it? That, it's like uh, building the ship while you sail. That's yeah. exactly how I felt. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But then you stuck with UX design and ended up working for bigger tech companies in design. Yeah, yeah. It's been an interesting journey um, from that moment where I decided to essentially like pivot my career and go deep in UX design in the hopes of eventually being able to like take those skills and apply it in industries or um, organizations that align with my mission and values. Um, But yeah, from there, I got my first job at a small UX design agency in uh, Denver called Effective. I think now they are, they Ogilvy and Mather, like which which is like a huge company, bought them. So I don't know, they don't exist anymore. But um, so yeah, I worked at that design agency for a co- for one year, and then I moved over to Aetna, which is the health insurance company. Um, and I helped design their mobile app, and I helped do a lot of product strategy there of uh, like building out behavior change strategies within the app. And then I moved to Google, which now I work in Google Cloud. And then right now, right now, I work at google.org in a fellowship, which is very cool. Yeah, that sounds super cool. I remember you telling me a bit about that last time. I didn't realize that Google had this .org fellowship program, but um, you mentioned you're working with the Moore, is it the Morehouse um, School of Medicine? Yeah, yeah, that's it. Nice. Yeah. Google has this cool program. Um, it's like it's Google.org. So Google funds like millions of dollars to .org and .org works with a lot of different organizations and municipalities uh, to do pro bono work. And so this particular fellowship and, and a fellowship is anywhere between like six to nine months. Um, so this fellowship in particular is with the Morehouse School of Medicine, um, which is affiliated with Morehouse College, which is a historically black college and university. Um, And so Morehouse has like a huge commitment to, you know, improving health equity for all communities, regardless of, you know, what color or race or gender or socioeconomic status or um, access to health insurance, you know, no matter what people should have equal um, opportunity to reach their full health potential is like Hmm. the grand vision. Um, And so one way to achieve that grand vision is to have better data. And so that policymakers can, you know, make policies that are actually equitable and target the right people. 
Um, so the platform that google.org is helping Morehouse School of Medicine build is to, yeah, how do we um, make a platform that kind of uh, is able, like how do we make a platform that is able to show public health policymakers and influencers where the inequities are in terms of different communities um, health outcome and what are the different factors that might be resulting in that uh, disparate outcome, if that makes sense. <laughs> yeah. Wow. So are you working directly with the data piece and like designing out some kind of dashboard system I'm trying to envision yeah. what it looks like? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's basically a dashboard. Um, where people can take a look at different variables, like different health outcomes or different determinants of health, um, like gender or race or socioeconomic status or health insurance. Um, mm -hmm. And they can kind of see how that looks within different locations um, and hopefully start to understand um, like what information exists and what information is missing. So like, a, the hard part about this project is that there's so much data out there, but uh, all of the data is garbage sometimes. <laughs> okay, mm. <laughs> basically it's like, just because you have data doesn't mean it's good data. And then mm. just because you have different sources of data doesn't mean you can combine them or smush them together somehow to like make a holistic picture. Like being able to standardize and aggregate the data is a very difficult task, which is why so many health inequities persist is because we just don't have the right information to tell us what's really going on. Um, so yeah, so like for example, Asian is a racial category, right? But that lumps together like so many different types of Asians mm. and like totally obscures the fact that, you know, native Hawaiian and Pacific Islanders are lumped in with Asians, but folks in the native Hawaiian and Pacific and Islander uh, communities have totally different access to um, jobs and uh, income and healthcare and, you know, resources than someone from like Japan or Korea, you know, it's like totally mm. crazy that everyone's just lumped into this one super category. Uh, and you just like, can't tell who's who when that happens. Yeah. I always find that so funny when you have all the check boxes for like, what race do you, do you identify with? And like, I mean, with Asian, there's like East Asian and South Asian and yeah. technically, you know, like there's Central Asian too, with like yeah. Iran and Afghanistan. So <laughs> it's just a catch all. Yeah. yeah. And like folks from the Middle East, did you know they're characterized as white in America? They're just, mm, yeah, anyone from like Lebanon, you're white or some, you know, it's just like crazy. These like racial categories are totally arbitrary mm. uh, and they were created by policymakers. So right. how do you show that to a policymaker and how do you start then collecting the right data? And then what is the right data to collect? Oh, it's such a complicated problem. <laughs> yeah. Is it a coincidence that you're also working on a master's of public health right now? Yeah, I, this is, um, <laughs> so I feel like in my career journey, I've been like going deep on UX design and, you know, I get to Google and I'm like, this is like where I should be like super pumped. You know, I, I've gotten to like a big tech company and I'm learning about UX design, but I was feeling like I've gotten so far from 
the original work, which was like working at a, this environmental nonprofit for community organizing. That's mm-hmm. like so grassroots, you know, it's like, so for the people. And now I work at <laughs> <laughs> like the biggest you know, tech company like, ever. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So I had a moment where I was like, what, what am I doing? Mm-hmm. Um, so that was part of the reason for me uh, to go back to school. And then another part was I was helping design some health tech products. Um, but I felt like the teams that were working on this product or teams that are usually involved with developing the software look nothing like the people who are actually using the product, right? Like you can't design a diabetes app, like an app to help manage your diabetes if no one in the room has ever had any experience with diabetes. It's like, how can you expect to really design well for someone if you don't know about the condition, you don't know about like the historical trauma related, you know, it's like, so I just felt like people in health tech sometimes lack the expertise in health and public health and clinical health that would really make whatever product they're trying to design or build so much better if they just had that knowledge or if they had the tools to communicate with the right people, you know, being able to translate between design and like a clinician uh, who works in the hospital, like I just wanted to see if there's an opportunity to like connect those two worlds a little bit better. So that was why I'm doing that's I guess that's why I'm doing a master's of public health. That being said, having now like survived one semester, (laughs) I don't know where it's going to take me. I'm just kind of really enjoying the classes and like learning about community health and um yeah, community health. I'm just like, yeah, enjoying learning about all of that stuff. I see some of your Instagram stories sometimes of like the things you're reading (laughs) and learning about, like, what was it like water quality or something recently? Yeah, it's just, it's hard because uh, I think in America and everywhere, right, it's like much easier to fix a problem if your scale of fixing the problem is only like individual. I don't know why. Mm -hmm. Do you feel like that's a sense of like, it's much easier to like convince someone to eat healthier instead of um, like lobbying a policymaker to increase the tax on cigarettes. I don't know. Mm-hmm. You know, it, for some reason, we focus a lot on, you know, putting all the ownership of change, all of the responsibility on individuals. Mm-hmm. Um, but we don't spend a lot of time kind of understanding how to address all of the, like all of the factors that go into that person's environment that's making them do the thing that they do, you know, probably because it's way harder to measure and like way harder to change. But um, yeah, I don't know. Yeah, definitely. I mean, for example, with the, I don't know if you know much about the recycling industry, but there's this great documentary on Frontline, PBS Frontline, that talks about how Basically, the recycling industry was started by the plastics industry as kind of a distraction. I know. And sadly, there's like barely any plastic that's ever recycled properly. I know. It's just a sham. (laughs) Like, I didn't know it was started by the plastics industry. That doesn't surprise me, but. Yeah. Yeah. It was like to divert attention away from their own practices. But. Uh, <laughs> yeah, Damn. 
Anyway, if you guys want the details, go to PBS Frontline, watch that documentary. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Yeah, yeah, it can be really depressing for sure. And I also studied sustainability in undergrad. And by the end, I just felt like the world was on my shoulders and there was no good solutions (laughs) and everything was going to end. But then I also fell into tech. And I think, you know, when you're designing and building things, it's a much different energy and approach yeah where yeah like you're you're coming up with new things and you're always problem solving as opposed to like critiquing and analyzing what's going on which obviously yeah. both are needed but I think in academia there's a little bit too much of the like critiquing that's a great point and I think that sums up exactly why I found UX design so appealing at that point was just like yeah exactly what you mentioned it it focuses much more you know on like the buzzwords of innovation and creativity to a fault yeah I I see what you mean it's like you need both right like you can't innovate without really thinking about what you're innovating about and you know it's like (laughs) like I, I guess like one of the things is like with tech no one thinks about the downstream, like the long-term downstream effects of what we're building mm-hmm. um, because there's so much emphasis on the possibility of, you know, what you're building right now and, you know, the creativity that goes behind that. But mm-hmm. that's a very interesting way to, that's interesting. I didn't think about mm-hmm. it that way before. I want to pivot into like talking about fitness and health and stuff, okay, cool. but yeah, I guess yeah. like that's kind of a segue talking about like public to private health. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but after college, like you experimented with different movement practices and started mm-hmm. documenting your mm-hmm. fitness journey on Instagram. Um, how did, how did you yeah. get started with that? Yeah, that that's gotta be like five and a half, maybe six years ago now. Wow. That feels crazy um yeah so after I finished swimming um so up until that point I had swum so much I I was very used to like swimming you know 20 hours a week so when swimming ended I no longer had a team I no longer had a coach I no longer you know I was like what do I do with myself how do I exercise if no one's yelling at me (laughs) uh yeah I was just like I feel like there was like a couple of months where I just didn't exercise at all really um And that kind of kickstarted this really negative space for me because movement was such a big part of my identity and my body was changing at that time too, because I wasn't like exercising 20 hours a week. And so um, like both not knowing how to move myself and like not both like not having a healthy relationship with my own body and healthy relationship with exercise and healthy relationship with food that just kind of Mm. all like festered at one point um, over the course of like three months. And so I feel like uh, maybe four or five months after college ended, I I had gained a lot of weight. I really wasn't in a good headspace. I was really like kind of desperate to just try anything (laughs) to figure out a new exercise regimen, a new way to like eat. I don't know. It was just like, so it was so overwhelming. So I feel like I, Instagram was not a marketing engine at that time. It was just like, I don't know. We just went on there to look at your friend's photos. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I remember <laughs> um, those good old days. Those, those good old days, you know, yeah, your little sepia filter or whatever. <laughs> uh, I don't know how I found, I feel like a friend 
posted that she was doing this workout program. And then I checked out that lady's Instagram account and she had these crazy transformation photos that was like exactly what I wanted with my life. I was like, I want that body. So I basically just like decided to jump headfirst into like BBG. And I saw that a lot of other women were creating Instagram accounts to keep them accountable and to like meet other people doing the same program uh, in that in their city and to get like tips and, you know, track their progress. So I was like, okay, I guess I'll make one too. It seems like, I guess this is what the cool kids do. (laughs) I don't know. And that is how that that's where fifth fam was born i guess it was it's kind of sad because it was born out of a place of like (laughs) not self-love and it was totally born out of a desire to look a certain way um but that is how i started instagram (laughs) wow yeah well it's blossomed since then and evolved into (laughs) a much healthier space yeah, I'm I'm very glad for it. Yeah, it's it's kind of both been my fitness journal slash my diary mm. <laughs> slash a food journal slash a soapbox slash, you know, just like any like rando stream of consciousness dumping that I feel like doing that day. <laughs> <laughs> Love it. Yeah. Love it. But yeah, it it's so crazy. I mean, I'm sure everyone at some point in their life starts a part of their fitness journey out of like not self-love mm, <laughs> you yeah. like want to look a certain way feel a certain way so that they can you know feel better about themselves um, yeah. which is such a shame I feel I've definitely felt that especially at times in my life where I didn't have a movement practice that I loved and you know how I I feel like this was bigger in the 90s and 2000s, but there's this whole messaging around like diet and like get abs in two weeks and oh, like yeah, yeah, yeah. everything. And I didn't realize until I started going to the gym regularly that it's like, it's a maintenance thing that you have to kind of keep doing for years. And hopefully it's something you can do forever that you like yeah. enough. Yeah. Um, and like now that I've been working out for years, it's like, oh, if I like skip a few days, it's fine. Cause I know it's like a long-term thing, but exactly. it takes a while to get into that mindset. It really does. And that's, that's really awesome that. Yeah. I, I love what you've just said about the idea that it's maintenance and it's, it's supposed to be sustainable. Right. And if you don't enjoy it or if it's too extreme, and you're, you're just not going to stick with it. <laughs> That's like the whole point of fitness. But I just wonder, like, at what point do we forget that? How do we teach that to people so that they don't have to like stumble through like so many cycles of, you know, self-hate and mm. you know, harm uh, yeah. before they get there? It's kind of cliche, but I found recently what's worked really well is just listening to my body. And, um, you know, you hear things like slow down or speed up, but I think it's like maybe less about pace and more just like what your body is feeling and needing at that moment in time. Cause sometimes Mm. I do need like a high intensity, like boxing or whatever. And sometimes I just want to do yoga or walk. Totally. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Like one of the things that I've really uh, valued in 2020 is this, since I don't commute anymore, I just go from like my bed to my desk. Same. <laughs> um, more time to A, sometimes stick around on the internet, but sometimes I'm, you know, I, I get into a good headspace and I, this practice of 
just like noting what's happening, like not even, because I feel like sometimes the the idea of like, you should listen to your body is overwhelming because, or at least it was overwhelming for me when people would say that to me, because I was like, I don't, I don't know what that means. Mm. <laughs> you know, like, what if I'm, I mean, you spend so many years totally out of tune with your body or like totally disconnected. Like I've spent so many years as an athlete like ignoring signs of like mm. my body hurts it's fine it's just because you're sore like you right. know I, I feel like I spent so many years ignoring or like purposely not paying attention uh, mm. because I was like so focused on other things that when people would tell me listen to your body or listen to your cues for hunger I'm like I don't know what those mean mm. um, so I feel like this last year the one thing that I've really try to do is just like take five minutes to just note things um like totally unrelated because i feel like we try to listen to your body when you like really really need to like you really really need something um but you haven't developed the skills yet right so how do you set aside time uh to practice those skills before you need them in that situation uh is something that someone's told me and so my practice is usually just like sitting for a minute and like either typing because that gives me something to do because sometimes I'm like too fidgety to just like sit there and like calmly think oh what am I feeling today sometimes <laughs> I'll like <laughs> I'll like just sit there and like say out loud um like just noting things without like really assigning any meaning or like thinking more about what they mean just like my back hurts I feel hungry I and sleepy i had a weird dream i don't know just like basically tuning in i don't know if that makes sense mm. but like without a purpose there's no point of me tuning in besides beyond the point of i just want to see what's going on inside my body so that when you do land into a situation where you do need to be a little bit more present like those like muscles are a little bit more developed mm. i don't know if that makes sense i love that idea of noting <laughs> and just noting of- checking in yeah because i when you're describing it it sounds to me a lot like meditation like what people call meditation but i find that word so intimidating i'm like i cannot sit still for more than like 30 seconds (laughs) yeah exactly yeah i like that on wrap better but i think you're right too because when i think of listening to my body recently i've had a lot of like just pure burnout days when i literally just can't get out of bed so i think you're right about it's when like your body hits the edge. That's when like, okay, yeah, I do need to let my body take over now. When you were talking about how as an athlete, like, yes, your, your goal is more around performance than like, um, maybe fitness or listening to your body. Um, and I feel like that mindset maybe helped you or led you into doing Ironman races, but how did you get into that whole world? (laughs) Um, yeah, I <laughs> uh, I was peer pressured into this Ironman by <laughs> my then boyfriend at the time. He, I, I feel like I'm, you know, slightly masochistic, slightly ambitious, this like mix of things that makes me think that like my first triathlon could be an Ironman and that's totally fine. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but yeah, so I guess like the story is uh, he... Uh, my boyfriend at the time, he wanted to do an Ironman. And then a bunch of kids from not kids, a bunch of guys from the swim team 
also decided that they wanted to do an Ironman. So we just kind of messaged each other and got this little group together and we all signed up for an Ironman. Oh my gosh. I will tell you, I had no idea what I was signing up for, Jade. I had no idea. It was crazy. Like I understood it was a very long race. uh, But up until that point, I had run a marathon and I was like, okay, like it can't be that much worse than a marathon. (laughs) I didn't even own a bike at the time, Jane. That's like how I didn't even know how to bike. I hadn't bike. I hadn't like been on a bike since like elementary school. Oh my god, that's like a third of the race. <laughs> I know. It is the longest leg of the race for sure. So, yeah, I I was uh, naive, I would say. <laughs> <laughs> Probably for the best cuz if you weren't, Probably maybe you would have done it. I wouldn't have signed up for it for sure. <laughs> <laughs> oh man. Yeah. So, how did that it first was- one go? Like what was the training like and what was the day of actually like? Yeah, I, so my goal for the the first time I did an Ironman was just to finish. Um, So I Googled free Ironman training plans and I found one. (laughs) I put it into a little spreadsheet and I was like, okay, I'm just going to follow this plan uh, as best I can for, and I think it was 16 weeks. So that was four months of training. Um, I, I think I had like an okay base before, not like crazy, but yeah, it was intense because I was, I also had never really ridden a bike for those types of distances. Like, I'm kidding. I'm not kidding. Like the last time I rode a bike was in elementary school or something. So that was like a huge learning curve of learning how to ride my bike for that long and not have my butt totally mm. hate me by the end of it and my back and all these things. Um, but yeah, I think I just did a ton of Googling of like, what do people do? What do people need for a race? Like, what are what are like the things that you need for the race? What are things that you need to bring and all this stuff? Um, but I felt like when I showed up for my first Ironman, I was like, so like, <laughs> not ready. <laughs> oh, I was no. like, really... Um, I just had never done a triathlon before either. So there's just like things about a triathlon, like the transitions, there's like ways to set up your transition zone. I had no idea how to do that. I got to the area to set it up and I just copied the girl next to me. I just looked at what she did and I was like, okay, I guess that's how I'm setting up my transition. Um, Like what are some examples of of a transition? Yeah, so like the, there's an area like from swimming to bike. So you like, there's like these long, uh, what are they called? They're like these long stands that you like hang your bike on. Mm -hmm. And you only have like a very narrow, like the space under your bike basically is where you can put all your stuff. Cause they put all the bikes like very close together. Mm -hmm. And so, um, generally recommended is you have like a towel, uh, cause you just finished swimming. So you need a towel to dry off and to dry your feet off. Uh, so that you don't get like blisters or whatever, when you put your socks and your shoes on. Mm. Um, and then, uh, and then like, just like how they, how people lay it out, like they just like lay things out in a way that you can grab what you need first and uh, making sure that you have food there because you'll need to eat in your transitions too. Um, just like 
and sunscreen and like all these like little things um, and like having extra pairs of goggles. I just didn't know. And so I just, luckily I had all that stuff with me in a bag. I wasn't planning on leaving it there. I was just like, I guess I'll just show up at the beginning of the race with like my shoes and stuff. I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) That's what I would have done too. (laughs) I have no idea. Yeah. And they don't, the Ironman people didn't tell me anything. (laughs) Probably because they know that these people, I don't know, maybe they assume that people do other triathlons before they try an Ironman. But I yeah, I just copied the girl next to me. And it was great. The Wisconsin, I also did the Ironman in Madison, Wisconsin, and they have a ton of volunteers. Um, So they a lot of volunteers just like answered all my questions, which is really nice. Oh, yeah, that's great. Wow. So you survived that. I did the day I'm telling you, like, the human mind is truly incredible of accomplishing insane things because that day was like the hardest day of my life. Mm. <laughs> and now I've totally forgotten about all the pain that I was in. But um, like the mind, my brain has like conveniently erased all of those memories. <laughs> um, so now I like, I'm about to do another one this year and I've already wow. forgotten you know, like all of the main, like the pain that I was in, but, um, yeah, I had a cramp. So like the, the Ironman, uh, for folks who don't know, is like, uh, 2.4 miles of swimming. And then you do 112 miles of cycling and then a marathon. So 26.2 miles at the end. Uh, when I first did my Ironman in Madison, I had a cramp in my stomach that started at mile three of the bike that lasted the rest of the race. So it was, I kid you not, like a 10 hour cramp. Oh my God. (laughs) And it like, I couldn't eat anything, which is really bad because you like really need to eat throughout the race in order to survive. Oh, it was so bad. But like your mind is amazing. Somehow my mind willed me to the end. I don't know how it did it. I don't know how... I hope that I can like dig that deep again, but, uh, but yeah, truly incredible what the mind and wow. body can do. Mind of steel. Seriously. Mind of steel. <laughs> <laughs> I, I hit several, I did cry. I did cry a couple times in the race, but somehow I, I managed to keep going. <laughs> wow. Does it help that there's other people around you doing it? Totally. I'd say Madison, I think, um, is like one of the best spectators, uh, mm-hmm. I think of all the circuits for Madison, it's like a huge day drinking event for the people who live there. So <laughs> it's like, everyone is there. Everyone's cheering. There's like crazy amounts of spirit. It was like, awesome. So those people definitely help carry you through the race. And then there's other people next to you, um, also trying to survive. And sometimes I, I, I distinctly remember two people I chatted with during the race. Um, one of them, I follow, we follow each other on Instagram now. So you can, <laughs> you know, still meet people while racing. <laughs> <laughs> Always it's be networking. Really <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, you know, you never know. You never know. <laughs> That's so funny. But yeah, you, there's a special bond you make with other people out there. <laughs> so like. Before I knew you, and I know one other, one of my colleagues actually has done a few Ironmans, but before I met you guys, like my assumption was like people who do Ironmans probably have been through like some crazy divorce or, or something that they're like trying to like, just, just like run the pain away or, or something like that. 
God. But I guess it's a lot of like people who were athletes when they were young too, like starting when you were young. So you're kind of used to putting your body under so much pressure. I think that is one of the cool things about Ironmans and triathlons is that there is like a huge age range. And I think running races too. I think that's probably one thing that I, I, I really missed from last year of like not going to any races of just seeing the huge range of people who are at these events and the huge age range. I can't tell you how many people in like the 60 to 70 age range totally have demolished me on the race course. They have just like, uh, like blazed past me. Like it was nothing. It's just like, wow, you are amazing. I hope to be like, 10% 10% as good as you by the time I'm 70. <laughs> oh my god. It's like pretty incredible. Wow. I hope to be like 0.01% <laughs> even. <laughs> yeah, wow. This is really inspiring. I've never actually run like anything other than like a 10k fun run, but yeah. Yeah, just hearing you describe that now I'm like, well, first of all, I just like miss being around people. But yeah. yeah, it'd be fun to maybe like have a race or something like that to work towards. Probably yeah. not an Ironman, but like <laughs> a fun run. <laughs> I love it. I I love I just love training for things. I I don't I don't even know if I need to like compete. Like competing is fun too, but I definitely love when after I finish training, I I cross it off. <laughs> you know, like yes. crossing, like it's just like a ticking off. Like I don't know, it's just like such a. I guess it's like the classic. Like I'm working towards a goal, and these are like tiny concrete tasks that I'm doing to like get towards the goal. And mm. you know, in work, you don't really have that, really, right? Like I don't, I don't have that in work. Not really. Mm-hmm. I have like big chunks that I'm working towards, but it's not like every day I get to be like, yes, I did this thing, and it's going towards this goal that I have, and blah, blah, blah. Mm. I don't know. Maybe I just, I like, I really yeah, like crossing. Very satisfying. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Especially like actual like pen and paper. Nothing totally. like that. Yeah. Nothing. Do you Nothing. have a favorite meal for post race? Post race. Oh, interesting. I feel like after a race, I just really crave salty foods. Cause mm. I don't know. I, I guess like all the things you eat on a course are usually pretty sweet. Like the goos and the chews and energy bars are usually pretty sweet. Gatorade is sweet. So, uh, I feel like kettle cooked chips, like potato chips are so delicious, not healthy, not replenishing at all, but very satisfying. (laughs) That sounds like not enough food, (laughs) but I'm sure the salty taste. very first thing I eat that's like a little primer and then after that you know I'll I'll, (laughs) I feel like I've eaten anything from Thai food to pizza it's just like whatever yeah whatever I crave at that moment gotta replenish the calories Mm -hmm. (laughs) love it yeah I have one last question for you which Mm -hmm. is Mm -hmm. around mental health I mean you're doing a lot right with work and uh, your degree and you know also all your fitness but with everything going on like what have you learned over the years like some ways for you to stay sane yeah that's a great question to which I still feel like I'm trying to figure out and probably will figure out or like spend the rest of my life trying to figure out but (laughs) Things that have helped me are journaling. I I guess I use my journal as a means to both document how I'm feeling and then also sometimes to process. 
especially during COVID when I'm not going out and like meeting up with my girlfriends or my coworkers to like chat about these little things, like the little things kind of just like add up in your brain. And I feel like at the beginning of the pandemic, it was just like snowballing and I would just kind of snap. Mm. <laughs> Sorry to my partner for that. Uh, <laughs> I'm sure but, he forgives um, you. He forgives me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. So I feel like journaling is like a, an easy, quick way for me to just kind of like dump it all out um, and try to process things. I also go to therapy once a week. My current therapist that I'm seeing right now um, really believes in like the power of mindfulness and meditation and self-compassion. So I'm just learning like new tools and like skills to use to kind of practice all of that, which is interesting. i I feel like I've done some meditation and I've, I've done therapy, but never quite in a way that like really emphasizes self-compassion and mindfulness at the same time. So I'm pretty excited to see where that goes. That's kind of new. Um, I love lists. I love lists. <laughs> and okay. I, I really use my, my Google calendar a lot because I, I can't focus on everything every day. So usually I'll have a school day. So like, I'll be like Tuesday, Thursdays, those are my days where I'll do school after work. Uh, Wednesdays are days that I'll do like, you know, like work, work, like if I'm if I'm behind on my work, or my fellowship, then I'll, I'll do more stuff there. Fridays are times where my partner and I have date night, or we try to like do something that will take us like outside of our normal routine. So I, I just like really chunk up my calendar. And I I worship it like it is the thing that I follow. So those are the things that I, I use to try to stay sane. And then also, what, what are you, how have you said it? Movement practice? Is that what you said? Sure, that, yeah. Yeah, I really like that saying. I've never heard it before. Movement oh, practice. Really? It's yeah. really lovely. Yeah, moving my body is also another time for me to just like uh, unplug and disconnect and just do something that feels good. I feel like I need to pick your brain on date night ideas or like <laughs> puzzling, <laughs> like making oh a puzzle. Gosh. <laughs> it's been hard because yeah, I'm like, what do you, what do you, what do you do to in during a pandemic where, yeah. you know, so many things are limited. I mean, I feel like we're lucky that California is nice so we can still go outside and do things. Um, but sunsets but sunsets are so early now too so it's like <laughs> after 5 30 ends you're like all right end of day night no, yeah <laughs> <laughs> yeah back to the cave back um, to the cave yeah but anyway this was so fun talking to you I feel like I would love to be friends with you IRL like we should oh, meet up one day um but no, you're, yeah you're like super chill um you know despite all your successes and and insta fame so, um, <laughs> <laughs> oh my god <laughs> but um yeah I appreciate you coming on the podcast and and sharing some of your story <laughs> I appreciate you and yes, I don't know when you'll be in California, but thanks again to Chi for coming on the show. And thank you for tuning in. If you're watching this, thanks for being one of the first YouTube supporters and listeners. Um, I'm very curious to hear what you guys think about this video format. So uh, leave me a note in the comment section down below, or you can drop me a comment or DM on Instagram at Inside Out with Jane. 
This was episode 16. So you can find all our audio episodes at insideoutwithjane.com or on your favorite podcast app. Be sure to subscribe for new episodes every Tuesday, and I will see you in the comment section. Bye.